love, there's something ironic about that text we just heard read. Paul ends by saying, uh, God is not a God of confusion, but a God of peace. Right after giving us one of the most confusing passages of scripture I think we have in all of his writings. <laughs> so we need prayer. So let's, let's pray together, then we'll uh, jump in. Father, we ask that as we open up our Bibles, that you would open up our hearts and our minds and that you would speak, that you'd make us attentive to your voice, that you would equip us and instruct us and challenge us and shape us and form us to be your faithful people in this world. And we ask this in Jesus' name and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. So if you're joining with us for the first time this morning, we have been in a series together looking at the book of 1 Corinthians. And if you're kind of new to Christianity, 1 Corinthians is simply a letter that uh, one of the most influential, prominent leaders in the early church named Paul wrote to a fledgling group of Christians in a large metropolitan city in Corinth. And Paul writes to this group regarding a wide variety of topics. And the topic that we've been kind of digging into over the last several weeks surrounds the issue of spiritual gifts. This last week, I began reading as a result of a gift from a friend, um, the book called The Gift by Lewis Hyde. I don't know if any of you have read this book or seen this book. It's a classic. But in his opening chapter in this book, he draws this contrast between how Indians understood gift giving and how the early British colonists viewed gift giving. And he said that the contrast was so strong that the colonists actually developed a special term called the Indian gift, which in their own day was a pejorative term. And uh, he kind of plays out the, the difference like this. He says, an Englishman visits a tribe, and while there, he shares in a pipe with the tribe. The pipe is beautiful. It's been carved from red rock. And before he leaves, his Indian host asks him to take the pipe with him. And the Englishman is tickled. He thinks, what a nice thing to send back to a British museum. And he takes it home and he sets it on his mantelpiece. And he says, time passes and the, liter, the leader of the tribe comes over for a visit in the home of the Englishman and he discovers that they have some expectation of him regarding the pipe. His translator said that if he wishes to show goodwill, he will give them a smoke and return to them the pipe. Hyde writes, in consternation, the Englishman invents a phrase to describe these people with such a limited sense of private property. The opposite of Indian giver would be a white man keeper or a capitalist. <laughs> that is a person whose instinct is to remove property from circulation, to put it in a warehouse or a museum, or to lay it aside to be used for production. And he goes on and he references the work of a great British anthropologist who demonstrated, uh, you know, from her studies, uh, a, a tribe in Africa who had this practice and it was kind of their value that if you gave somebody, let's say, two goats, you couldn't use those goats to produce or to make more goats or to uh, trade for a cow. Instead, you had to use those goats to feed and throw a big party for a tribe. And reflecting on this, uh, Hyde writes this, he says, he says, the Indian giver understood a cardinal property of the gift. He says this, whatever we have been given is supposed to be given away, not kept. Whatever we have been given is supposed to be given away, not kept. And he says, the essential property of a gift is this, the gift is always on the move. 
Now, I think that the Apostle Paul would probably have agreed with that definition of gift, and it actually resonates with how he talks about spiritual gifts in this passage. You see, very often we think about a gift as kind of some special, almost like uh, it, it, it's, your, it's your Christian superhero power, you know, that you get, and everyone has at least one, some have more than one, and you take a very scientific uh, internal analysis, and we determine what your gifts are, and then we plug you into, you know, a special ministry to fit your gifts. But instead, Paul speaks about a gift as something that God gives to us or does in us so that he might bless others through us. In fact, the way Paul puts it like this, he says, to each is given the manifestation of the spirit for the common good. In other words, God is at work in a variety of ways among a variety of us in order to bless and strengthen and help others among us. Or as James Dunn puts it, and we've read this quote again and again, but you got to get this one. He says, a gift is never strictly speaking my gift. It is rather given to me only in the sense that God chooses to act through me for the sake of others. Indeed, in an important sense, a gift is not given to me at all, but only to the one to whom the gift serves. Whatever we have been given is supposed to be given away, not kept. And so Paul gives a wide variety, a wide array of ways in which the Spirit of God gifts us. He gives something to us in order that we might serve and bless and help others. Now, last week, we looked at one of those gifts. It's the gift of speaking in tongues. And what Paul views is that that gift, really, if you were going to kind of like categorize them and set them from the greatest to the least, he puts it kind of on the bottom of the list. But at the very top of the list, he sets a different gift that we're going to look at today, and that's the gift of prophecy. So today we're going to be talking together about prophecy. Now, prophecy, according to Paul, is arguably the most important, the most significant, in some ways the most common of all of the ways in which the Spirit of God manifests itself, but it is arguably also one of the most misunderstood of the gifts. And so we're going to be talking together about prophecy. I love it. Last week, we're all about speaking in tongues. This week, we're going prophecy. Guys in? Yes. All right, so we're going we're gonna to note three things from the text about prophecy. Number one, I want you to see the superiority of prophecy. Secondly, the meaning of prophecy. And then finally, we'll talk about the danger of prophecy. Let's note first the superiority of prophecy. 1 Corinthians 14, verse 1, Paul writes... Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. So he says, of all of the things that you should desire for God to do among you, among me, is he says this, he says, especially that you may prophesy. For, he says, the one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to God, for no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the spirit. But on the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. The one who speaks in a tongue only builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. And he says, I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more that you might prophesy. For the one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues. And so do you see what Paul is doing? He's doing a little compare contrast with tongues. And he says, far and away, prophecy is superior. 
And so he says to you and me, he says, pursue God to work in your life for the sake of others, but especially that you may prophesy for others. And then he says, uh, at verse five, he says, uh, yes, you should desire tongues, that's good. But he says, but even more that you may prophesy. And then he says, for the one who prophesies is better. So are you getting the note in the text? Paul is saying, look, I want you to see the significance and the importance of this spiritual manifestation, the spiritual gift. And it's something you and I at Christ Church should desire, we should pursue, and we should seek after, which raises a question. What is prophecy anyway? What is it that we should desire? Now, we're going to get to that in a minute. But before we do, I just want you to note in this passage that Paul views this being an almost ubiquitous gift within the church. Almost everywhere you look, people are speaking words of prophecy. He, he says down in verse um, 29, he says, let two or three prophets speak and let the others weigh what's said. And then he says, verse 31, for you can all prophesy one by one. He says, you can all do this. What is he talking about? You know, it's interesting in the scripture, what you discover is that one of the chief ways in which the spirit works through us when the spirit falls on us is through speaking these words of prophecy. There's this great story in the Old Testament where uh, Moses convenes this gathering of leaders. And as the story goes, uh, he invites 70 leaders, 68 of them show up, two people for whatever reason missed the meeting. I don't know if they slept in, they didn't set their alarm or whatever, but Moses, I mean, Moses calls a meeting and you miss it, really? You know, and at this meeting, something significant happens. The spirit is poured out on these leaders and it says that they all prophesied. Well, meanwhile, the two guys that didn't make it to the meeting are out in the camp. And the spirit also falls on them and they start to prophesy. And there's a young man that sees them out in the camp prophesying and not at the special authorized meeting. And he goes and he tells on them and he says, Moses, there are guys out there prophesying and they're not even in your meeting. And, and, and Joshua, son of Nun, got a great nun name. Um, but he says, he says, well, tell them to stop. And Moses replies by saying this, he says, no. He says, would that all the Lord's people were prophets and that the Lord would put his spirit on them. Moses says, this is something you should desire, that all of God's people should prophesy. And what's fascinating is as the biblical story unfolds, the ancient prophet Joel says that Moses' longing that all of God's people will prophesy would one day be fulfilled. He says, the day is coming when I will pour out my spirit on all flesh and your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your male servants and your maidservants, from the greatest of them to the least of them, he says, they will all prophesy. And then after the great event of the death and of the resurrection of Jesus and his ascension to the Father's right hand, he pours out the Spirit. And Peter, after this event, he looks at it and he says, this is that day that Joel promised. He says, your sons and daughters will prophesy and people go out in the streets of Jerusalem and they're speaking words about God and they are speaking the greatest of them to the least of them. And so... Paul is saying, look, this gift is, is the height. I mean, this is so significant. It's so important. In many ways, this is, this is, it's like the chief sign when the spirit comes, people prophesy. But again, that raises the question, what are we talking about? What is prophecy? 
And that takes us from the superiority of prophecy to the meaning of prophecy. Now, I don't know about you, but when I think about prophecy, the, the, the person that comes to mind is Fiverr in Watership Down. So has anybody here read Watership Down? What are you, culturally illiterate people? You really need to go out and read this book. One of my favorites, but it's about a colony of rabbits, which of course it's gonna be great. But there's this rabbit in the colony who gets this premonition, or it's in the warren, it's not a colony. I guess it's not a colony of rabbits, it's a warren of rabbits. But he gets this premonition, this dark foreboding premonition that something terrible is happening in the future. And he sees these terrible visions that the Sandalford warren is gonna be torn up and rabbits in there are gonna be gassed to death. And so out of this great terrible premonition about the future, he warns the rabbits and they flee the warren. And that's kind of what comes to my mind when I think about prophecy. It's these premonitions, these dark foreboding visions about the future. But what's interesting is that according to Paul, prophecy isn't so much about God's word about the future in this passage. It's more about God's word for the present that actually brings comfort and encouragement. Look at how he describes it in three different sections in this passage. Notice verse three. So what is prophecy? Well, here's Paul's definition. He says, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding, for their encouragement and their comfort. He says, he's not primarily talking about speaking a word about the future as he is about speaking a word that brings comfort and encouragement and upbuilding for the present. Now, of course, occasionally in prophecy, there is some predictive element, but I don't think that's what Paul primarily has in mind, at least in this passage. And notice there's a second description that he gives in verse, 20, or, uh, verse 24 to 25. Look at what he says here. He says, but if all prophesy and an unbeliever, or an outsider enters, he is convinced by all. Now stop there for a second. Paul here again is comparing and contrasting prophecy with tongues, and he says, if somebody speaks in tongues in a public gathering and a non-Christian is present, they're gonna look at that and think you people are crazy. But he says, instead, if somebody speaks a word of prophecy, look at what's gonna happen. If all prophesy and an unbeliever or an outsider enters, he is convicted by all, he is called to account by all, the secrets of his heart are disclosed and so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is truly among you. God is truly among you. And so here the prophetic word, the word is not only a word that speaks comfort and encouragement. Here it's a word that convicts, it exposes, and it leads somebody to repentance. Charles Spurgeon, who was a great preacher in Britain, once described a remarkable experience he had while preaching. Uh, he suddenly broke off from his sermon subject and pointing in a certain direction said, young man, those gloves you are wearing have not been paid for. You have stolen them from your employer. Well, at the close of the service, a young man who he had never met before and looking very pale and greatly agitated came to the room which was used for a vestry and he begged for a private interview with Spurgeon. And on being admitted, he placed a pair of gloves upon the table and tearfully said, it's the first time I have robbed my master and I will never do it again. You won't expose me, will you, sir? It would kill my mother if she heard I had become a thief. And Spurgeon writes this, I could tell as many a dozen similar cases. 
in which I pointed at somebody in the hall without having the slightest knowledge of the person or any idea what I said was right, except that I believed I was moved by the spirit to say it. And so striking has been my description that the persons have gone away and said to their friends, come see a man that told me all the things I ever did. Beyond a doubt, he must have been sent by God to my soul or else how could he have described me so exactly? James Dunn describes a similar event like this. He says, prophecy prevents a man pretending to be other than he is, prevents the believer hiding behind a mask or pretended righteousness of apparent spirituality. At any time, the prophetic word may expose him for what he is. Aren't you glad you have me up here preaching instead of Spurgeon every week? You guys would be terrified. But no, let's pray that God actually may work and move in a variety of ways. But I don't think it's that unique. Haven't you ever had the experience of sitting and listening to a sermon and had that thing going on in your mind? Honey, did you tell him? Who let them, mom and dad, like, did you let them know? How did you know? But whatever is said is so specific and so concrete and so applicable to your, your, your own situation. You just feel like they are speaking to me. Now, of course, it doesn't simply, this is not, according to Paul, simply something that a preacher does, especially a great preacher like Charles Spurgeon. He says, no, you can all prophesy. You are all equipped by the Spirit of God to speak into each other's lives words that comfort or encourage or convict and expose. Paul later describes the same experience uh, like this. And this gives us another kind of angle on prophecy. He says, let two or three prophets speak and let the others weigh what is said. And if a revelation is made to one sitting there, let the first be, I, I have a typo there, it says smile. You guys see that? Yeah, so if a, this is my translation of the Greek. If a revelation is made to one sitting there, let's all smile. <laughs> Actually, he says, let the first be silent. Now, we're going to dig a little bit more into this next week, and we'll get actually into something else he says here in just a minute. But what I want you to see in this verse is this word, if a revelation is made. And what it seems to imply, just look at the text, what it seems to imply is that God gives somebody something. Maybe it's an insight. Maybe it's a burden. Maybe it's a, a scripture verse. Maybe it's a thought and it's not from them, it's actually from God. And then you speak it into somebody's life and the net effect is comfort or encouragement or conviction or being exposed or instructed. Do you see that? This is what he is describing. And so one uh, scholar on this stuff named Wayne Grudem, he describes it simply like this. He says, prophecy is when we report something God has brought to our mind. Or we could illustrate it like this with this rather rude illustration. God gives you something and then you share what he gives you with somebody else. Now, it raises some more questions though. Well, what, what, what does this actually look like and what does, it, what does it feel like? Now, in some ways, what we're talking about here is not analogous to scripture and that kind of prophetic word. We're gonna talk about that in a minute. But in this way, it is analogous to scripture. When you read through the Bible, these are all different ways in which God has revealed himself. 
And they're from different personalities. And some people are high-ranking government officials in the Old Testament, and some people are marginalized and persecuted. Uh, some people are well-educated, and some people are uneducated in Scripture. And some write long narrative, and others write letters, and others write these, you know, fiery, you know, social justice messages that, that confront Israel for all of her problems. And some of them are these crazy apocalyptic visions. But all of it constitutes God speaking to his people. And so too, I think that there's a variety of ways in which God can use us given our personalities and our experiences and how we hear God, how we listen to God, how we relate to God. He can use that to, to impress something upon us and to lead us in a way that blesses, comforts, and builds up other people. Now, I remember uh, back when um, we were in Albuquerque, my wife and I, we were kind of having this discussion, maybe it was a little bit of a debate. I don't know if anybody who's married in this house ever has any debates. We were talking about buying a home and I wanted to buy a home and she was hesitant to buy a home. And then um, the Lord corrected her and gave her a vision. <laughs> I'm just kidding. But she had a dream one night and um, she had this dream about this house and about meeting the owners of the house and then on the same day meeting the neighbors of the house. And then, I don't know, it was a week or two later, we went to look at this house and she said it was like deja vu. She said, it's like I've seen this house before and this owner of the house before and the neighbors of the house. And that became a significant confirmation to us because this house, as it stood, uh, was in a more dicey neighborhood. And I can remember actually being a little bit concerned to move my family into this neighborhood because there were transients, you know, that were walking around. And um, it was a, kind of a, a mixed neighborhood. I remember walking down the street when I was kind of prayerfully considering this. I had my Bible in my hand. I was kind of walking around the neighborhood. And I walked by this guy who was kind of like transient. And he just looked at me and he said, what are you doing with that Bible? Put that away. And I just felt like, wow, this is concerning. And yet... I do believe that God gave my wife something to share with me because it, 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 it affirmed the decision. And I don't think there's anyone in this room that hasn't had something like that happen. And maybe it wasn't a dream. Maybe it was just a, a strange coincidental conversation that you're like, was that the Lord speaking to me or the sermon or whatever? But I think what Paul wants to us imagine here is that this is common among the people of God. God is personal and intimate and concerned with us. And so he relates to us intimately and personally. And he does that because he is a communal God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He does that through the community of faith. And so I think this is what Paul is describing. And so we've seen something of the superiority of prophecy, uh, something of the, the meaning, the nature of prophecy. But I want, you to, to now, I want us to talk for a minute now about the danger of prophecy. Now, while prophecy is arguably the most significant and important gift that the Spirit of God gives to the church to build us up and strengthen us, it is also arguably the most abused of all of the gifts. Because there is no easier way to coerce and manipulate a group of people than with the words, God put this on my heart. I think God is leading us in this direction. Because once God has put that on your heart and once God is leading you in that direction, then who are we to disagree with you? You just got God validating you. 
In fact, some of the worst distortions in the history of the church, the worst heretical movements, the worst breaks off of the church have involved distortions in the arena of prophecy. I think about Mormonism and Joseph Smith. And here's a man who claimed to hear God and speak on God's behalf. And here's a man, and I, I, I read a couple years back, a couple of very large academic biographies on Joseph Smith. And this is a man who walked up to young ladies under the age of 18, in some cases, and said, God told you to marry me. And if you don't marry me, he's going to kill me. It is so coercive and so manipulative. And of course, pastors do this in churches. You know, God has put a vision in our heart to raise a million dollars. And so God has told me to tell you that you need to send me a love gift of $1,000. And let's do it today. God is in this. And you can justify just about anything you want in the name of God. In fact, I'll go a little bit further, even say, you know, within even this church and other communities I've been a part of that are Christian, the people that oftentimes assert with the highest degree of confidence that God revealed to them something unique that they need to tell to me are oftentimes, in my experience, the most deluded and self-deceived people I've met in the church. And Paul recognizes this. And so Paul actually calls the church in light of this to weigh prophecies. Look at what he says in verse 29, he says, let two or three prophets speak and let the others weigh what is said. If revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. So he says, let two or three prophets speak and let the others weigh. That word weigh could be translated as sift, separate the wheat from the chaff, look for what's good. Or as Paul later says in 1 Thessalonians chapter four, he says, don't despise prophecies. So to those cynics that say that everything that claims to be something that God put on someone's heart is just, oh, that's just a tool of manipulation and control and a power game. Paul says, don't despise prophecy. But then he says, test all things and hold fast to that which is true. He calls the community to be a community of discernment. In other words, if somebody comes to you, maybe in a friend or in a sermon or in a community group or whatever venue you might be interacting with another follower of Jesus and they say something like, God gave me this thought and I had this put on my heart. I have a burden. I had a dream. I had this scripture that I think is for you. And, and what Paul invites us to do is to take what we felt we have received from God and to submit that to the discernment of others. In other words, sometimes, in fact, I would go so far as to say this, certitude is not necessary in this arena. You don't need to be certain that this is from God if you're gonna share it with people. In fact, you need to have a willingness and an openness that maybe what you think God has spoken to you or done in your life isn't from God. And so you submit it to other people. What do you think about this? And you let others weigh what is said. And in this way, what Paul I think is giving us is a hard distinction between two different kinds of prophecy. And so on the one hand, there is what we would call, uh, in fact, this is what Wayne Grudem calls scripture quality prophecy. Isn't that a great term? It sounds so modern, scripture quality prophecy, you know? 
And he says, scripture quality prophecy is infallible and it's foundational. And this kind of prophecy is what the authors of scripture give to us. And so, for example, in 2 Timothy chapter, or 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 19, Paul talks about scripture quality prophecy like this. He says, and we have the prophetic word made more fully confirmed to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place. So here's scripture, it's a lamp shining in our dark lives until the day dawns when the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, (coughs) that no prophecy of scripture come from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And so here in 2 Peter, he's talking about scripture quality prophecy that really is the foundation of the church. It's what everything else is built upon. Scripture level prophecy is what's given to us in the canon of scripture. It is the foundation. It is the rule whereby we judge everything. We wonder, is this a word from God or not? But then I think in 1 Corinthians 14, he's talking about a different kind of prophecy, congregational prophecy, the kind you actually do submit to be weighed and and is there parts of this that's good? Can it be tested? And this is fallible and it's not foundational. So do you see the distinction between those two things? But what Paul is saying is that, look, this congregational prophecy, this is a work that the spirit of God does among us. He does give us burdens. He does put stuff in our mind and our heart, and he does invite us to speak those words into other people's lives, but to do so with a caveat. The caveat is ask them to discern. Do you sense that this is from God? Is this right? And I think Paul has given us here then the guard against from prophecy becoming distorted and controlling and manipulative and coercive. And listen, I think Paul is both going after our cynicism, those of us who write this stuff off as all false, but also our naivety for those who just accept everything hook, line, and sinker. And he says, no, don't despise it on the one hand, but test all things and see that which is from God. All right, so let's, let's close like this. <laughs> You know, last week I ended our, our, our discussion on speaking in tongues by asking the question, what am I supposed to do with this? And this is an incredibly important question for you and I to ask as a church family. Paul is not simply giving us concepts to discuss. He is inviting us to interact with the true and living God who dwells among us by his spirit. And so what are we supposed to do with this teaching about prophecy? Well, I think we could sum up Paul's answer to that question in chapter 14, verse one, he says this, desire, earnestly be zealous for the spirit of God to work among you. Be zealous for God's spirit to be at work among you. And friends, I think, you know, I was thinking about this text a couple weeks ago, and it just struck me, I think a lot of us desire a lot of things. We live in a highly desiring culture. But what we primarily desire to enhance and enrich and make our lives better are products. 
and we pour over the internet, reading about products, investigating products, shopping for products, searching for the product on Craigslist and eBay and Amazon or whatever, and we just, we just, we're, we desire products. If we get more and more stuff, it will enrich us and it will make our, us safe and happy. And Paul says that is a lie. What you need more than anything else to make you whole and to build you up is God's own work among you in your lives, bringing you comfort and fulfillment and encouragement and hope and conviction and exposing you and bringing about repentance in your life from those things that make for your own destruction and leading you in paths of richness and fullness and life. This is what we need, isn't it? And Paul says, look, we are a spirit and we are a community in whom God's spirit dwells. And so seek out the Holy Spirit to use you to speak into other people's lives. And let me just give you two very practical ways you can do this. Number one, you can ask people to listen to God on your behalf. Number one, ask people to listen to God on your behalf. Now, I remember listening to a, a pastor a while back um, and his wife's name was Holly. And so he called her, he said, my wife, she's like the Holly spirit, you know? <laughs> and what he meant by that is he just felt like his wife was very spiritually sensitive. And so he'd often discuss things because he felt like God oftentimes spoke to him and, and brought insight and direction into his life through his wife. And my wife's name isn't Holly, but she is way more spiritually sensitive than I am. And so I lean on her to listen to God on my behalf. And you should do this with certain people in your life who you trust are close to God, who are walking with God, who listen to God, who pray. You can ask them, hey, can you, can you, I'm wrestling with a decision. I'm trying to get this thing figured out. I'm stuck in a pattern. Would you listen to God on my behalf? And then open yourself up for them to speak God's truth, the gospel truth into your life. But secondly, don't only ask others to listen to God on your behalf, listen to God on behalf of others. Listen to God on behalf of others. And I think what this might look like is simply you taking names and faces into your prayer closet and praying over people and asking God, what is your vision for this person? What's your desire for them? And maybe God gives you something that you can share with them. It's being sensitive in the moment, on the spot, when you're in conversations, when you're at community group or whatever, and you've been kind of trying to walk close to God yourself and then you have this thing like, I don't know why, I just feel like I need to share this with you. And you share with them a passage or a word or an insight or something and ask them, just present it to them to be weighed and to be sifted. Does that resonate with you? And so listen to God on behalf of others. But I wanna close with this and I wanna invite our worship band to come up. But listen, so... I was listening this week to a debate 
between um, a guy named Wayne Grudem, who's a Christian uh, theologian, and another guy over the issue of spiritual gifts. And so Wayne Grudem was a, um, he believes that the, the gift of prophecy is something that, that God does today. And there was the other guy who says, no, uh, this gift ceased with the close of the death of the apostles, the close of the apostolic age. It's no longer for today. So they're in this kind of debate. And it was fascinating. And if you're interested in that debate, you can come up and talk to me. I'd love to have a conversation with you about this stuff. It's interesting to me. It's cool. I think it's important. But Wayne Grudem said something that struck me, and maybe to you it might feel simple or um, like kind of like no duh. But he said this. He said, you know, throughout Scripture, what we discover is that God, who reveals himself in creation and to Israel, is a God who is personal and intimately concerned with his people. Because sometimes I can think, well, God is so big and there's so many big problems in the world. Why does he care about these little problems in my life? Like what house I'm going to buy? But you know, I went surfing on Friday with my daughter, uh, Lucy and Audrey, Lucy 13, Audrey, who's turning 17 tomorrow. And, you know, we talk together, and I want to know all about the details of their life. If they come to me and say, Daddy, I only want to talk to you about the big church decisions you're making, I'd be like, honey, no, I want to, like, so what, what music are you liking these days, you know? Because intimate personal relationship is all about the details. And listen, God demonstrates his commitment to be intimate and personal with his people when the transcendent, immortal, invisible, all-wise God who is the ground of all existence and being became flesh and blood and took on a particular humanity in Jesus of Nazareth and walked among us. And he reached out his hand and he embraced us and he bent down on his knees and he washed our feet and ultimately he stretched out his arms and he was crucified on a cross for our sakes because God is intimate and personal with his people. And one of the ways in which God just wants to interact with us intimately and personally is through the words we might speak into each other's life. Do you believe that? Do you desire that? And so let's be a community of people that longs, that looks for God's spirit to come and work among us. I don't wanna put God in a box. I don't wanna live like a practical atheist. I wanna be open to what God might do among us, don't you? And so let's be a community that seeks after him, that is open to his work among us.